Welcome to the Composer Quest Season 1 Finale episode. Yep, that's right. I'm finally taking a break after four and a half months of two episodes per week. I hit 40 episodes with this one, and I guess that's a nice number. And so I'm going to take the summer off, work on some projects, because to be honest, I haven't had much time to work on my own compositions. I said in episode one that I'd be writing 45 minutes of music a month, but I have to come clean. I haven't been able to do much composing at all. But I feel like these interviews have been totally worth my time. When I have sat down to compose, I keep thinking of these tips I've heard over and over while editing the podcast. Like I said, I've produced 40 episodes now. They're all available to listen to at ComposerQuest.com, and I hope they're inspiring to you and you learn a thing or two from these fascinating interviewees. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate a little review in iTunes. That would really help boost the podcast's visibility so that other people can find and enjoy ComposerQuest. Thanks. If you're wondering how you can get involved in Composer Quest, well, yesterday I posted the second Composer Quest quest. It's going to be a fun challenge, I think. I'm going to pair up Composer Quest listeners randomly, and then you'll have about a month to come up with a track between the two of you on the theme of conversation. And your track will be added to the first Composer Quest album. So make sure you sign up before next Monday, May 20th, at ComposerQuest.com Quest 2. Back in episode 12, A Composition Seed with Dr. Brian Campbell, Brian mentioned a theorist who was doing some interesting work with mathematics and music, Dmitri Tomasko. I reached out to Dmitri to see if he would be willing to let us use some of his music samples from his website, and he was so friendly I thought, well... Why don't I just ask him to be on the show? Dimitri's been composing for a long time, and teaching composition for a long time too, at Princeton University. As he describes himself, he's a philosopher of music. He thinks about it, he writes about it, he theorizes about it, and you have to wonder, is that actually a valuable use of your time as a composer? But Dimitri explains it in this way. Theory is like working out. It's like practice. And then when I compose, It's not that I'm thinking about those things explicitly, but all that practice and all that training that I've done is guiding my intuitions. Dimitri has a ton of great composing tips for us, so why don't we just get to my talk with Dimitri Tomasko. Did you go to composition grad school or undergrad or? Uh, Undergrad. Got it. Okay, so you haven't ruined your life yet. (laughs) No, I guess not. Is that what happens? Well, you know, composition grad school, it's a good thing, but it's it's a high-risk activity. So I always make sure with our students that they try to consider all the possible outcomes. I mean, in my case, I got into a really good law school and I got into composition school, and I had to kind of choose between them. And I remember the question I asked myself is, would I prefer to be a corporate lawyer or a high school music teacher. And I sort of thought of those as like the second or third best outcomes of the situation. And I actually decided I would prefer to be a high school music teacher than a corporate lawyer. And then that made the decision sort of easier. I think you made the right choice. (laughs) Well, thanks. In my opinion. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In retrospect, that's for sure. Well, I was reading the first chapter of your book. I wish I could say I read the whole thing of A Geometry of Music. For people who haven't 
looked at your website or anything, uh, how do you explain your geometry of music theories? Well, before I would even get to the geometry part, I would start with what I think of as the five basic components of tonality. And the first property is that melodies move by short distances. If you play a melody on a piano, usually you're moving by one or two keys and you're not leaping all over the piano really quickly. The second property is that harmonies, your chords, whatever they are, they tend to sound relatively similar to one another or relatively consistent. Number three is that if you count up all the notes you hear in a moderate span of musical time, you tend to get a limited collection, say five to eight different kinds of notes over, say, a 20 to 30 second span of music. And then the fourth property is that typically one of the notes will be more important than the others, more stable. And the last property is that, in general, the acoustical properties of dissonance and consonance are used in ways that reflect the musical properties of stability or instability. So I think of these five properties as setting out a really wide space of musical possibility. And the music that attracts me most is music that makes inventive use of these five properties or that combines them and recombines them in unexpected ways. I thought on your website it was really interesting how you demonstrated these five properties by constraining random notes, like putting these rules on them. Adding each of those properties in, you basically turn random notes into something that sounds like the music we're used to. What you find is that a lot of the traditional frameworks for composing music are just on their own incredibly powerful, and that isn't always true about some of the artificial grammars that 20th century composers came up with. Now, in terms of what you do with that as a composer, you might want to spend less of your time coming up with radical alternatives to tonality and more of your time coming up with new ways to use these traditional tonal materials. I mean, if you think about composers like Prokofiev or Steve Reich or the Beatles or this band I really like, Tune Yards, that's all tonal music, but it's really radically different. You wouldn't say that those composers are anywhere close to each other, and you could add Palestrina and Mozart. And so this is, I think, a powerful reminder that even within these sort of simple basic constraints, there's enormous room for creativity, and there are whole tonal worlds that we haven't yet explored. Unlike my teachers, I think of atonality as a tense place that you're going to be for a while, but eventually you're going to probably want to return from that tense and alien world. I have no aesthetic problem with challenging and esoteric music, and I totally celebrate atonality, esotericism, composers doing whatever they want. The one thing that I am against is people writing esoteric music, but denying its nature. If you're in the business of making clam chowder ice cream, that's great and totally fine, but you just shouldn't get upset 
if your ice cream is not as popular as Cherry Garcia or Strawberry or whatever. <laughs> That's a good analogy. Um, so if a baby was raised just listening to atonal music Ooh. its entire life, would they consider that pleasing? Yeah, well, that's the big question. Um, to my knowledge, this has been done. I think there's a rumor of a couple kids oh. <laughs> I was told of, but we don't know because we're not allowed to do experiments like this. It's immoral <laughs> to do experiments like this, basically. Uh, in fact, just to give you a sense of the complication, fetuses, babies that are in the womb, still can hear music through the uterine walls. And so to really do this experiment, you'd actually have to start the atonality from before birth. And you'd also have to be very careful about the mother not letting her walk into places where there would be tonal music as well. Yeah, I think that kid would be kind of messed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one possibility is the kid wouldn't really be messed up because it just wouldn't take. I believe that no matter how much you raised a baby in an atonal musical environment, that baby would still end up with a lot of the basic musical predilections that normally raised children have. So I think preference for consonants, preference for regular rhythms, preference for limited macro harmony, all of this stuff is in part biological. The, it, it's a really serious scientific question how much of it is biological, and I think that right now we just don't know. You know, I think that in the next 20 or 25 years, we will get a, a much clearer picture of just how much is culture and environment and how much is biological. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about your own music. Yeah, um, sure. Because your album just came out recently. Yep. Crackpot Hymnal. Typecase Treasury. What was your creative process in that one? That's a seven-movement piece for string quartet and double bass. When I was writing it, I was thinking of this thing we had in our house, which was an old printer's typecase that was filled with all of these wonderful little minerals or fossils or gemstones. And I just remember that, you know, there was a shark tooth in one of them. And so it was just this tiny little cabinet of wonders that I could just look at for hours and be amazed at the variety of all of these items. And so when I wrote the piece, the challenge I set myself was to create a bunch of small musical movements. They're all two or three minutes long that created form through juxtaposition. How did you come up with the titles? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it goes from hurdy-gurdy to Russian metal. Title generation for me is, is very much a mystical process. First, I start working on the piece. And then at some point, some words attach themselves to the music. Usually it happens somewhere in the middle of the composition. And when I get it right, I get this rush and I feel like, yes, that's what I'm going for. That particular movement, the Russian metal, I was thinking about the connection between like Shostakovich's music and some of the weird tonalities you find in heavy metal. They're both attracted to very dark tonalities like Phrygian or idiosyncratic scales that are weirder and even more dissonant and strange than traditional minor. (laughs) 
the group that played it, which is the Amernay Quartet. They said, so what do you mean by this title? And I said, well, do you know the Black Sabbath song Iron Man? And the first violinist, who is of Russian descent, he said, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. It does sound kind of like Iron Man now that you mention it. How does your roots as a rock guitarist, how does that influence your music now? Well, I'm certainly attracted to ensembles that have some connection to popular music. I like having a drum set. I like having synths or saxophones or electric bass. Uh, One thing I often tell my students is I think that instrumentation is a really, really, really important feature of music that our training encourages us to overlook. I'm sure every composer has had the experience of being at a party and they say, I'm a composer. And someone says, oh, you are? What instruments do you write for? And when you're in the composition school mindset, the question, what instruments do you write for? It sounds a little like, what font do you write in when you're using your computer or your word processor? Do you use Geneva font or do you use Helvetica or Times New Roman? And you want to say, well, it doesn't matter. I'll write for any instruments. That's not the important thing. The important thing is my melodic and harmonic and rhythmic and expressive vocabulary. The truth is, what instruments you write for is probably the biggest single determiner of how people are going to respond to and classify your music. If it's got drums and saxophones, it's jazz-like. If it's got just a string quartet, it's classical in some sense. Your album Beat Therapy for Jazz Band. I noticed on that album, all the uh, pieces are right around six and a half minutes yeah. to seven. Did you plan that? You know, I didn't plan that, but it's pretty eerie. They're almost all exactly the same length. Length is another one of these really simplistic musical features that really has a huge effect on how people relate to your music. I think the world's attention span is getting shorter and the 20-minute Mahler movements are getting harder and harder to stomach. You know, these days, even novels seem like a huge investment of attention compared to blog posts. Newspaper articles are becoming overly loquacious and we want to see just the summary. Now, I think one really important function of good art and of good music is to fight against the shrinking of our attention span. I guess for me, those six-minute spans, they're right around the length of maybe a typical classical symphony movement, you know, a movement by Haydn and, and Mozart. And that length was kind of like the minimum length where I could express myself compositionally and also leave open room for the improvisers to make statements of their own. When the collaboration between improvising performer and composer works well, it's just like the most wonderful thing that can possibly happen to you as a composer.
chapter five of my book, I talk about this sort of very simple idea of using graphs to represent the notes in your piece. The different notes are laid out across the bottom of the graph, and then the bars show how important each note is to the piece. So a graph of C major might show that C and G are very important, E is next in importance, the white notes are next in importance, and then the black notes are at the very bottom. And so one thing I'm really interested in is using graphs like that as a framework for improvisational structures. And the piece that I'm going to write next is going to have someone sitting at a synthesizer who will be playing on the synthesizer and often not making sounds, but the playing will produce a graph like the ones you find in chapter five of my book. And then there will Hmm. be this large ensemble of people who will be improvising based on that graph spontaneously. So we did this, yeah, we did this in my graduate class last year. And it's this amazing feeling because you can be sitting there at a keyboard, not making any sound, and you can have 12 or 14 improvising musicians, and you can turn on a dime between all these different harmonic worlds. You know, if you want to go to D Phrygian, bang, you can be there in a second and the ensemble, poof is all playing in this new key, or if you want to create an atonal sound world that has a lot of C and C-sharp and D, poof, you can be there immediately. It's a kind of technologically mediated improvisation that really nobody's tried before. Cool. This comes out of my computer music stuff, because, you know, one of the examples is just a simple, randomly generated piece But unlike John Cage, instead of having every note be equally probable, I use these very, very unequal probabilities. So you're hugely likely to hear E and pretty likely to hear F sharp and not at all likely to hear F natural and so forth. What you hear is a kind of burbling sort of avant-garde tonality, you know, a kind of rhythmically unstable, slightly ambient, slightly gloopy musical texture that's still incredibly tonally rooted. One project I was working on, just for the heck of it, your graph thing made me think of this. I was analyzing the melody of when you wish upon a star uh-huh because i realized that melody is so weird because it almost never goes to the tonic note right i guess it's a little bit skewed because i'm hearing the chords underneath it in uh-huh. the head that have the root note but it's pretty amazing that it holds off doing the tonic note until like the very end of the phrase Yeah, well, that's a big thing in jazz. I mean, I think if you listen to a lot of jazz, the tonic note is pretty much avoided by the soloists. And it's actually pretty much avoided by the chord-playing people, too. And the bass player will give it to you now and then. But the tonic note is very much something that the listener has to supply in his or her brain. And in a way, the downbeat is in the same situation. If you think about where the rhythmic energy is, it's on the and of four, it's on two, it's on four, but nobody's crashing on the downbeat. And so the downbeat and the tonic are both things you have to put into the music. And this is why the music is both addictive to the people who get into it and kind of esoteric and off-putting to the people who don't haven't figured out how to do this. 
you, you know, if you go back far enough in time, this doesn't happen. If you listen to a Mozart melody, there's a lot of tonic note. But 20th century melodies are much more likely to sort of imply the tonic without really stating it. And then, as you say, a lot of times the harmony instruments will be really, you know, if you listen to a, if you were to count the notes in a standard performance of When You Wish Upon a Star, you'd hear tons of tonic notes. Mm. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, how have you used your research into geometries of music? Have you applied that to your own compositions? Yeah, sure. The way I think about theory and composition, for me, theory is like working out. It's like practice. You might ask a football player, how does your interest in weightlifting relate to your performance on Sunday in the game? And they would say, well, you know, all that training and practice and all that time in the gym gets me stronger and faster and gets me better at spontaneously making the athletic moves I have to do in the game. And I feel sort of the same way about theory, which is that theory helps me understand musical relationships. And I spend a lot of time thinking about what are the deep structures underlying music. And then when I compose, it's not that I'm thinking about those things explicitly, usually, but all that practice and all that training that I've done is guiding my intuitions. And I've found that the more I compose, the faster I get at composing. And it's not the painful trial and error process that it used to be. Teaching composition has very much the same function. So the more you help other people solve their musical problems, the more practice you get solving your own musical problems when you run into them. Speaking of your composition students, what do you think is the best piece of advice you can give to composers? <laughs> uh, you prepared me for this question, but it's, it's still a difficult one. The first one I would say is a huge part of composition is loving music. So you have to start with just some incredible love for some music that's out there. Sometimes I meet young people, I say, well, what music do you love? And they either don't know what they love or they lie about it. One student came to interview at Princeton and spent the whole time talking about how much he loved Steve Reich. And that was fine. We talked for an hour about Steve Reich. And right before he left, I said, one question before you go. If you could choose to have written any one of Steve Reich's pieces or Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which would you choose? <laughs> and he said, Sgt. Pepper's. I just sort of like <laughs> burst out you know, laughing. I said, why did you just talk to me for an hour about this other music? And obviously the reason was he didn't feel like he could talk to me about that other music. He felt that there was something that I was expecting and that he was trying to satisfy that expectation. That's just not the way to be a musician. You have to start with what's really in your heart and your ears and your soul and go from there. And if he likes Beatles and Steve Reich, find some way to mix them. The second piece of advice is that you have to think of music making as a do-it-yourself activity. The way to success is not to sit around hoping that the Berlin Philharmonic will call you to commission a piece. You have to make your own music, and you have to make it happen. Put on your own concerts, make your own recordings, play the music yourself, or find friends who want to play your music, 
And if you're lucky, people will notice what you're doing, and then someday maybe the Berlin Philharmonic will want to play your piece. But I think when I was younger, I put too much stock in the existing structures of music making. I guess the last piece of advice I would give is just it's really important not to get discouraged. And and I think like 99% of being a composer is not giving up. To that end, it really helps to have a little sympathetic group of friends or fellow composers or teachers or just a group of people who are interested in the same basic things and who can support each other and make a little community that is your first and most important audience. What do you do when you get stuck? Well, I've been composing long enough that I know what it feels like to compose well. What it feels like is it's it's fluent and there's a lot less self-doubt and you just do it and your whole psyche is in a smooth flow. And so if I'm not there, I will often just close that file on my computer and start a new one. Sometimes I'll sit there and meditate for 15 minutes and try to get my brain into the place it needs to be for good musical ideas to come quickly and for that evil little critical self to be silenced. I guess one technique I have, I'll say to myself, this morning I'm just going to write music and I'm not going to critique it and I'm not going to worry about whether it's good or bad. Tomorrow I will edit. Tomorrow I will improve or destroy but today there will be no no. There's just yes and. The idea of separating out the critical moments from the generating moments, I think has been incredibly helpful. You know, when you're young, your critical faculties are always better developed than your generative faculties. So you know that the piece you write isn't as good as Beethoven's best music. That's totally obvious to you long before you can write music that's anywhere near as good as Beethoven's. And so what you have to do is not let that genuine critical knowledge eradicate your creative self. Yeah. I feel like when you're very young, you just have this generative side and and not the critical. Yeah, right. I wonder when that switches over. (laughs) It's probably different for different people. And you know, some people just never have that critical side and they just always love what they do. In a way, I'm a little bit like that. I just love my own music, and I probably love it more than anybody else does. I also can be incredibly self-critical, and I get just as depressed about composition in my own music as anyone else does. But the breakthrough for me was really to realize you have to celebrate and nurture the fan of you that lives inside your own heart, you know, because that's where composition comes from. Well... Dimitri, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, my pleasure, Charlie. Thanks for asking me to come on. Thanks for joining me on this last episode of Composer Quest Season 1 with Dimitri Tomasco. For more of Dimitri's music, you can go to dimitri.tomasco.com, and I'm definitely going to have to spell that for you. It's D-M-I-T-R-I dot T-Y-M-O-C-Z-K-O dot com. On his site, there's a lot of cool articles and research, and you can also buy his book, A Geometry of Music, that we were talking about, and his album, Crackpot Hymnal, which includes the typecase treasury piece we were talking about. I just want to say thanks to all of you who've stuck with the podcast for these first 40 episodes. I'm really excited to bring you some more. 
We'll have some special episodes this summer before we get into Composer Quest Season 2. So make sure you subscribe at ComposerQuest.com, either through email, RSS, iTunes, Facebook, or Twitter. Another reminder here, if you want to be part of the first ever Composer Quest album, make sure you sign up for Quest Number 2 by Monday, May 20th. Go to ComposerQuest.com slash Quest 2. Feel free to email me if you have any questions about this quest, or if you have ideas for future quests or podcast topics, or if you just want to send me your music. I'd love to hear from you. Charlie at ComposerQuest.com I'll leave you the same way this episode started, with this theme by our guest, Dimitri Tomasko. But what you didn't know is that this is actually a collaboration between him and his five-year-old son, Lucas. They've formed, as he calls it, an outsider art band named the Desperate Cannons. So thanks for your help, Lucas. You are officially the youngest composer we've had on the show, and so I wish you good luck in your own composing quest. <laughs>